Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. When I conducted a listener survey earlier this year, some of you said you wanted to learn more about the intersection between queerness and nature. We did feature a few guests in season one who identified themselves as queer and working actively on environmental issues. Examples of some of these guests were Isaac Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan, who talked about his experiences of being a queer person of color in the mainstream environmental movement. We also had Ari Copeland, a transman who spoke on transitioning in the workplace as a water plant operator. And then we also had Katie Burns, who shared her experiences as a lesbian working with the National Park Service. So we continue to explore these intersections with Edgar Sochil, who will be talking to us about queer ecology, which entails deconstructing the idea of what is considered natural and unnatural. Edgar uses the example of flowers whose pollination methods and seeds are not gender binary. Another example that stuck with me is that of Carl Linnaeus, a white man who sought to establish the order of all plants and animals by renaming them with Western names. Now, most of these plants and animals already had names given by indigenous peoples. And so Edgar is calling for recognition of the indigenous origins of these stolen plants and flowers. This to Edgar is a way of decolonizing the flower. There are other great examples he gives in the conversation. He also talks about or rather gives examples of animals that are known not to conform to this gender binary that is so pervasive and imposed into our societal mindset and fabric. Edgar speaks more on how his work as a queer farmer of color focuses on cross-pollinating traditional ecological knowledge queer politics and indigenous philosophies to connect the dots between decolonial botany and queer liberation. We have some great resources in the blog article summarizing this conversation. I'll provide the link as usual. So check it out if you'd like to start building your own understanding on queer ecology. I know I really appreciated this because it's not necessarily... Well, it really isn't a subject that was discussed when I was getting my degree in environmental studies. So the learning continues and I hope that the resources and this conversation is really helpful in helping you build a better understanding of a non-binary approach to nature and to conservation and sustainability. Enjoy! Thank you so much for being on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you about your work as a farm manager and especially around your experience, expertise in queer ecology. I know that for me, it's a fairly new concept that I'm still learning about or a way of being that I'm still learning about. And so I'm really hoping that I can get a deeper insight through or looking forward to getting a deeper insight through our conversation today. So I'm going to start with this first question, which I typically ask all of my guests, which is what role has nature played in your life? Nature has always given me an avenue to explore both the physical world, but then as a result of exploring that physical world myself. For me, it's been a space for me to just allow my curiosity to wander by just observing. 
So it's been a grounding force. It's been a space for me to retreat to. It's been a space for me to find myself. Yeah. And, you know, the older I get, I feel I've added more thought process into what nature means to me. And it just becomes more and more sacred because just the, you know, the more understanding every time I, I learn a new fact about some insect or a tree or some mushroom, it's just, I'm looking at the same thing with a new set of awe. And I, that's what I love about nature is that there's always a layer of awe that can come from being in nature. Yeah. Uh, that totally resonates with me because I, for some reason, had the assumption that if I'm going to be pursuing environmental studies or environmental biology professionally and in school, that I should know everything about whatever is in like any ecosystem, <laughs> which is completely ridiculous. And I still struggle with this as I get a little bit embarrassed if I don't know basic things about like, you know, oh, did you know about like, like you were saying, I've discovered new animals. I'm like, oh my gosh, I never knew that existed. And you just, it's that kind of refresh on how amazing nature is and that I just don't know all of the animals and plants that exist out there. Yeah. I've been able to like have the basics solidified. I can totally re- relate to that. Sometimes I'm looking at rock and I'm like, is this a metamorphic rock or a sedimentary rock? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so it's like, I to feel be like, or not to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but ultimately it's a rock and I, I mean, my, I, the whole point is I'm admiring the rock, but it's like, mm. Yeah, don't but don't tell a geologist that. They'll be like, it's not just a rock. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> but those are like really cool. Even like learning about clouds. I can, yeah. you know, in school, we learned about maybe five types of clouds, uh-huh. but I've learned there are a lot more than that. And it's really difficult for me to identify unless it's like a very, I don't know, distinct shape, like a cumulonimbus <laughs> or a cirrus. <laughs> Oh, that's really cool. So tell me a little bit about how you, you know, one of the things that you educate people on is decolonization of flowers, which when you first, like when I first learned about it, it was through you. And I was like, oh yeah, of course it makes complete sense. But if you can tell us about, let's start with like the most basic, which is what is decolonization of flowers? And then what is queer ecology as well? And if there is like, if you see an interconnection between those two, I guess, perspectives. Yes. So the decolonization of flowers is, I really started getting around this when I was learning more academic levels of botany and just the way that in a botanical sense in academia, the way botany is set up is through flower structures. It was Linnaeus who organized plants by their flower structure. and so. At the time, that was pretty radical. He was also infusing reproductive elements to these flowers. But what was happening for the need to categorize everything was that Europe was seeing an influx of plant material from Africa, the Americas, and Asia. And with all this extra plant material needing to organize it, Linnaeus put it by flowers. And in doing so, he created this modern idea of what botany is. And so... As I was doing some research along these lines of how plants were structured and where these plants were coming from, I'm looking at the erasure of native names and locations of where these plants come from. Some of these plants are so common around us, and we just know them by their common name and have no idea of their social, physical, ecological role in other parts of the world. And so as I was 
exploring a little bit more of this and all right and discovering the colonial side of all this history at least i'm learning about it for the first time and then i was working on a farm um teaching propagation classes i was at the center of agroecology and sustainable food systems in santa cruz so i was the propagation specialist that year but i was digging deeper into these academic jargon of how flowers are categorized and then also reteaching that to the class the cohort that i had was sharing the greenhouse and, and all the propagation elements of that. And so as I was teaching these propagation seeds, cuttings, just general plant families for food production, I was also just mentioning how the system was set up. And so decolonizing flowers is really looking at the academic sense of how this, this science is categorized and deconstructing that. And there's no direct way to completely replace the system that exists, at least not yet. And I think that just like any kind of organizing work, it's a generational project. It's going to take multiple generations and multiple people challenging these norms, both from the outside and the inside. And so decolonizing flowers is the first step of moving in that direction. It's just realizing that these flowers scattered from all over the world have been replaced by names of rich, white, cisgendered men. And so that is essentially what decolonizing flowers is, is putting that on the table, right? Putting it on the table. This is how the science was created. It's how it's validated. And this heteropatriarchal infusion of society is laced into the academic world and how we view nature. And so decolonizing flowers looks at it from a botanical sense. But then if we expand that lens a little bigger, we can really see that this power structure is not just laced on the botanical world, but it's also laced on all the other natural sciences. So that includes the way with zoology, entomology, you know, any kind of study of plants and animals, that system of colonial power is already laced into the academic world. Mm -hmm. And so tying it into queer ecology, there is a whole element of academic literature on queer ecology. And in a nutshell, I would say it's incorporating queer bodies into nature. And whether that's camping or biking or you know any kind of outdoor recreational force. The way I, I use queer ecology is more as an organizing tool. And so once you kind of have the information, all right, the, all this science is colonial in structure, then what do we do with that? And for me, that's where queer ecology comes in. Queer is a social structure. It's a word that's come out of organizing and people uh, reclaiming that language and using it in a context that reflects the people using it. Ecology is also a social construct, and it's a reflection of the power structures that exist. And so using queer ecology is really taking the ecology and creating the new social construct that is much more reflective of who we are today. It's an organizing tool. It's a way to start that discussion of, okay, queer ecology, what is that? And then you can explain just the queerness in nature. Nature is, is filled with queer examples. And there is this heteronormative way of looking at nature is the colonial lens that we've been taught. And so by deconstructing that and leaving that behind and just observing nature for what nature is, we can see the multiple ways that nature exists outside of our, the heteronormative idea that we've been taught. Let me just give you a few examples. Plants and animals require sperm cells and egg cells to meet each other. And so this idea of reproduction has been laced with these heteronormative ideas of male, female. They find each other and then they make a new generation. But mushrooms don't act like that. They 
kind of just existing. And then they find each other wherever they want to reproduce. And then they basically touch up against each other. And whatever part of that mushroom that's touching each other, that's where the genetic material gets exchanged. It's not like a specific egg and sperm cell. It's just existing. That's the way they've been doing it for hundreds of years and millions of years. And they're the inner soil. They're just, they exist outside of what we normally understand. And I definitely would say mushrooms are super queer. There's also just examples of birds. There's seagulls. I went to, uh, was it Anacapa Island during seagull mating season? And it is a... Where is that? It's off the coast of Ventura. Okay. It's off the California coast around the city of Ventura, Ventura, Oxnard. And it was a super loud camping. You camped overnight and it was the seagull just all the time. 24 hours just squawking away. Cackle, 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 cackle. <laughs> yeah. But seagulls are a great example. They're the first academic paper that was where homosexuality in animals was accepted. Huh. And so the study was looking at mating cycles. These married biologist couple ended up looking at, you know, observing these animals. And they were noticing that some seagulls, like an average egg or nest with eggs is about two to three eggs. And they were noticing like five to eight eggs. And they were like, whoa, what's up with these? So they caught the birds, they checked their sex, and they realized that both of these birds were egg-laying. They were female birds. Mm. And so then they kept looking and observing nature. And then it just turns out that these seagulls were just going off, getting fertilized, and then coming and raising their nests together as a lesbian seagull couple. And so that paper was written in the early 70s. But it, like I mentioned, it was the first paper where homosexuality in animals was accepted. Previous folks, researchers that were looking at this, when they tried mentioning it, they were ridiculed because they were infusing their perversion into the animal world. So that's what the peer community was rejecting any kind of homosexuality in animals. And so a lot of these early documentation of animal behavior is labeled as aggressive. And so they're using this language and this toxic masculine language to describe these animals in their same-sex uh, patterns. Yeah. All right. A lot of questions here. <laughs> so I'll start with the one where we're talking about decolonizing flowers. You mentioned that Linnaeus, and what was their first name? Sam? Carl. Was it Sam? It was, Carl. Carl. Carl Linnaeus, yeah. Carl Linnaeus. So... If I remember correctly, the names of plants and animals are like the family name first. Is it the family name? And then like the last name is after whoever or whatever they want it to be. Well, they do go family and then genus and species as far as how it's broken down. But the labeling of any step of those is where Linnaeus is putting European men as the label. Yeah. One example would be Alstromeria. Mm-hmm. It's a whole series of flowers and they're predominantly in South America. And at the family level, it's Alstromeria. And then so all these species, hundreds and hundreds of species are all named after this guy, Alstro. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then there could be something very specific at a species level where someone discovers one plant and just takes that label for that plant. Yeah, because I've heard of like some species being named after whoever discovered them, mm-hmm. right? That's like typical naming practices. Yes, it is typical naming practices. And it, today it's harder to have a whole family named after you because most of the families have already been 
organized. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right now, if you're naming a plant, it's most likely at a species level. Okay. And then I know with genetic sequencing, they've broken up families a little bit. And I think that was the last major like family addition was when they started realizing that this flower structure that we thought were together were actually genetically separate. And so, I mean, that's what the consequence of new technology. Right. So if we were to like decolonize the naming practice, I would imagine, and you're here to tell us like what that means exactly. It's, I guess, like you were explaining earlier is these plants were named by indigenous communities first. So decolonizing would mean readopting those names. Is that correct? Yes. Readopting or integrating them into how we teach about them in the future. Mm, yeah. Because the solutions to climate chaos involve a lot of this old knowledge. And even just the word of a plant in its indigenous form carries knowledge that hearing that plant in English or any colonial language can't offer. Mm-hmm. There's that power in that, that power of just the word that built the relationship that these indigenous peoples have with with any creature, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see an, a cultural educational legacy that comes out of this because I would say that reincorporating the most common plants, regardless of where they're from, is a good way. And sometimes just in that sense of decolonizing, because it is a lot of information and a lot of people are not like full botanists or really care that much. But having a way to acknowledge the history of these plants is part of those solutions because it's just giving that respect back. It's allowing future generations to understand the true legacy of of these plants because it's not the plant's fault that they're in different parts of the world. They're surviving. They're still catching carbon. They're still interacting with local organisms. That's the humans brought them. And more specifically, it's the relationships that humans have with each other that really amplify this. Yeah. One of the like a sense of decolonizing flowers, you know, you have these idea of these like European gardens and culturally European gardens. But if you really look at the plants that are making these gardens, they're not from Europe. Culturally, they're European, but socially and I would even say spiritually, they're definitely not European. That is the idea of colonialism, just these gardens, these beautiful sets of like pristine yards and trees and changing flowers throughout the season. That's all a product of colonialism. They wanted those plants to bloom at those specific times so they can have a huge color. And they could just show up to their friends, show off to their like friends, their peers, their social class. But most of those plants probably are not from those areas. And decolonizing flowers would just allow these folks to acknowledge that their culture is a result of plant theft mm-hmm. and resource theft. Yeah, I was thinking of two things as you were talking about just there's so much that comes with a name so like in some languages the only example that comes to me is like in Swahili which is the language that's primarily spoken in eastern Africa there's some words that we don't have for such as like maybe so for example like the word cave if we translate it directly it could be like hole in the earth you know or (laughs) hole in rock but it's like it gives so much more meaning to a word for example Mm -hmm. 
So like I was just thinking, like, for example, there might be a tree that it has a name that explains like what it does or the role that it plays in a particular community. Because it can be like, I don't know, spirit tree or tree that's or plant that's used for typhoid. I don't know. Or something that's used for a cultural practice. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That is the relationship building that indigenous communities all over the world have built with their ecosystem. They put that knowledge in the language so that it's with these plants. I use Alstermeria as the example of just like Linnaeus named this whole family, but there's one of the indigenous words for Alstermeria is Rayo Canchu, and it means fire flower. Mm. Its common name is Peruvian lily. So if you get a chance to look at that, it's fairly ornamental now, especially here in California, super ornamental. But, you know, it's got some medicinal properties in it. And it does have this fire idea in the petals. Let's see here. Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. Okay. These are really common and very pretty. Yeah. I also think with decolonizing flowers, as we look at solutions to the future, we might need to incorporate non-native plants to our local ecosystem because they come from a similar bioregion or the bioregion that we're moving into, a particular area is moving into. And so I feel in the sense of if we're adding other people's plants for long-term solutions, I also feel there should be a way for us to incorporate the relationship those humans have with those long-term plants. And a specific example I can tell you is that I don't remember exactly where in Africa, but I was taking this course on like climate projections into the future. And so they were comparing like my bioregions and there was a place in Africa that had such a certain mitigation of resource or how the resources were going to change over time that they started planting Douglas fir as a way to adapt, you know, so they can have a food, a tree source. These trees are going to like transition into the ecosystem where they're going to thrive. And then it's moving into the future, sequester carbon and all that. But I feel in cases like that, there should be a way for us to integrate like, hey, as the indigenous people where these Douglas fir grow, we're going to bless these trees and, and send them to you. Or go and help you plant these trees because they're going to help you navigate into the future. But they, we also have this deep spiritual, cultural role with these plants. And I feel like that is a great way to build bridges and share plants in times of peace. Because a lot of these plants moved through colonialism and that was kind of like death. And as we really look into the future, there's a way to integrate local ecological knowledge and being able to share it because the plants themselves are not at fault. Yeah, that's interesting because I think of introduction, accidental or intended introduction of non-native species as like they're invasive species, right? And I, I lived in Florida and invasive species are a problem all over the place because everything thrives in Florida. And it's just completely changed, I think, the natural ecosystem in a sense. And it's not just plants, it's also like the animals, especially like the pythons, the boa constrictors that are just prevalent. It's really unfortunate. And then the fire ants, argh, fire ants are horrible. <laughs> They're just everywhere. So, yeah, definitely in any space, trying to keep as much of the local vegetation is great, local flora and fauna. But I also feel like it's kind of like a, the native ecosystem is a painting and you drop 
like a color that's not part of it in there. You can't really undo the painting anymore. You can't undo, like, say, a giant blotch of yellow. You have to integrate it. And that's a long term, like, that's multiple generations because eventually something will control these pythons. I know the crocodiles are kind of like trying, but they're losing at the same time. <laughs> I was a crocodile. I would not try. <laughs> I'd be like, you um, stay over there. And, you know, sometimes when we think of these large animals, really it's like the small creatures that might take them out. The ones that mm. find the adaptation to eat the boa from the top, like the, using the example that the fire ants eat the boa. But yeah, that's going to take a thousand years or more. And all we can do is a lot, like keep maintaining the, as much of the local ecosystem. So the local plants also learn how to interact with, build their defenses. But with how quickly we move, we could just bring new, continuously bring new parts of the world into our local ecosystems. Yeah. Now, I really like the example you gave of the Douglas fir because I didn't really think, I guess the way I've been taught is like anything that's not native is bad. Right. And that's not necessarily the case, as you were explaining. It could be for the benefit, if done correctly, can benefit another ecosystem and help like this overall kind of like climate system that we're trying to, I don't know, going to further collapse, essentially. And I think I really like that idea. I like it. <laughs> and it doesn't, in my mind, it's not like, oh, non-native is not good anymore. I don't think of it that way with your example. Yeah, people can go to very extreme and just keep it things very native. And like I said, I, there's a lot of value in trying to maintain a lot of those spaces as long as we can. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there's that, that information, there's the, the land memory, the species memory that exists. Because if the language disappears, there's ways for the other organisms to teach us that again. Yeah. As long as they're around. They have to be around so that the space can exist where we can interact with them and get those memories. Yeah. But there's also these adaptations we need to start making with the plants that can survive. Yeah. There's one example that I can think of right now. So in the city of San Francisco, there's a ban from removing like these eucalyptus groves because they become cultural norms. Like people really like these. And they're beautiful groves of eucalyptus, but there's nothing else growing in them because the leaves can be phytotoxic. They're starting to, in certain parts of the city, they're putting up their high plantings of native understory. And not everything survived, but I feel the idea behind that is that these plants will adapt. They're repropagating those plants from seeds so that each generation is slowly much more adapted. Native plants that are adapted to these eucalyptus understory that's one step closer to putting a koala in there but <laughs> i don't want koalas in california I, <laughs> I hear they can be quite violent i don't yeah. know i've never seen a koala I, I, but i, neither have I, I. hear they're <laughs> i just put that out there mainly because nothing's eating the eucalyptus so i'm always oh, like yeah that's true yeah. throw a koala or two yeah Aren't eucalyptus like water intensive trees too? Yes. Yeah. Wow. And these groves were planted probably like a hundred years ago, but they're just really trying to integrate native understory under these eucalyptus. So interesting. I just thought of this as is rewilding a form of or would it fall under like a category of this concept of decolonization of flowers? Rewilding, 
Hmm. I guess those are actually two different things because, you know, decolonization of flowers, you're talking about going back to the original names of these plants and kind of honoring that, whereas rewilding is, I guess it's a form of decolonizing, like, conservation, right? Yeah, I would look at rewilding as an observation sense of, like, just seeing how these organisms exist in nature Mm -hmm. and reconnecting that way. Versus decolonizing flowers, I really look at it as like the base to like challenge and question academic levels. I mean, that's the way mm, I've used yeah. it is more of an academic sense. Like, here's the science. Yeah. This is the way it's organized. This is a decolonized version. And it's just the first step of like acknowledging yeah. that the botany and the sciences are all laced with this layer of heteropatriarchy. Yeah. And then rewilding, I'd see it more as a little bit more free-spirited and definitely less academic, just more like mm-hmm. not really knowing. Let's see, like someone who doesn't know about botany in an academic sense. And let's just say they're spending a lot of their time indoors on a computer, and then they go outside and they're like seeing things kind of for the first time. I would see mm-hmm. that more as a, it's still a connection and starting from a different point than academic, but you're kind of experiencing everything in a new light. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about queer ecology. As I was kind of educating myself a little bit more on the topic, I realized, and it's something that you said about how the concept of queer ecology is trying to undo the binary, correct? Like the binary nature of mostly Western culture where it's like, female, male, self, other, boy, girl kind of thing. So then I was thinking about how do I think about it differently? And like when you were explaining about, for example, how the mushrooms reproduce, which I did not know. All I've seen is like in media, whatever, you just see the spores going out Mm -hmm. and you just wonder, where do they go? What happens? (laughs) But would it be fair to just think of within like the principles of queer ecology to think of like sperm and eggs as just sperm and eggs and not like male, female? Is that correct? Yeah, I would see them as reproductive cells. Yeah. So the binary exists in the language itself, just like male, female flowers. And one way to reflect of what is actually there is pollen producing and fruit producing flowers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the male, female, the egg, sperm, there's still egg and sperm, but they're reproductive parts versus they're like male parts and female parts. And that's kind of where the binaries is integrated into that nature. There's also with queer ecology, it's a way to challenge this idea of what is natural. That's another important binary that, that is infused in that science of heteronormative behaviors are natural and anything outside of that is unnatural. And this heteropatriarchal structure is designed around humans being more than nature. We're above nature, or at least the way it's been laced in the science. Humans are above nature, and then within humans, men have more power than women. And then if you take that up for the, another layer of scrutiny that humans put on themselves, heterosexual people have more power and privilege than homosexual people. And then cisgender people have more power and privilege than transgender people. And that kind of, the further you go down, the less unnatural you are. And that is how 
these systems are laced. So queer ecology, to me, helps challenge all that. There is a, a whole academic field of it and how to incorporate it. But the way I've been using it is organizing and being able to have the discussions and then doing something about it. And in my case right now, it's working on a farm. Yeah. So tell us about that. How are you using queer ecology as a tool for your work as a farm manager? And you're at a collective farm in San Francisco, right? Yes. The farm is called Hummingbird Farm. It's a six acre space on occupied loaning territory, specifically the Excelsior neighborhood of San Francisco. And so the organizing group that helped build the space, they call themselves Urban Campus in X. And so what this is doing, it's replacing the O in Campesino with an X and making it uh, more gender inclusive and really removing the gender that exists in Spanish in farm worker. And that's just one way of already incorporating queer ecology by making language much more inclusive and integrating it to what the future needs to be. We need farm workers, we need farmers, we need collaborative working, we need all bodies and shapes to work the land. Yeah. And that was, from my understanding, the original intent with the youth organizing that name. So on the surface level, that's what exists. So let me stop you there for a second. Sorry. So Campesin X translates directly from Spanish to English as farm worker. Yeah. Farm worker or farmer. Yeah. So Campesino, it's kind of, again, with the power of language, there's no direct distinguishing language between in Campesino, whether you're a farmer or the farm worker, Mm. because there's rural farmers that use the word Campesino. And then there's also farm workers that use the word Campesino. So the language itself implies you're working with the earth, whether or not you have access to land. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And so it's an earth worker. It's in Spanish. And so these youth in San Francisco just took the O in Campesino and added Campesinex. Yeah. And so that is just one way of using language to incorporate queer ecology. Because again, the bigger idea is to get folks involved in working in the space, volunteering, building that connection to where their food comes from. And then, you know, making sure that they feel included in that. So that's a language sense. And so when we're on the farm, I'm trying to get garden tasks done. But within that, when we do have a space to share some knowledge or like information or more of a bigger picture of what's going on, flowers, for example, we'll refer to them as pollen producers and fruit producing, just to allow folks to really integrate this non-binary sense. I mean, I guess you're still using a binary, but not in a Western sense. We're giving them both power by announcing what they are producing. And we're creating this the farm in a way for people to show up for who they are, because in order for us to show up to any space, we need to be able to accept that we are natural. And so one of the things that we try to do on the farm is integrate people where they're at so that they can continue to grow and nurture it and bloom further. And then, you know, when organisms show up like the mushroom, then those are just the examples where we're integrating, okay, this is the way these organisms interact. The other thing with queer ecology, it's like hand in hand with like other indigenous practices we're doing on the farm because we're including a spiritual ceremony level to how we're using the space. Hmm. We'll hold space for each other. We'll bring some medicine, some sage or papal, and then acknowledge each other in that space. But within that, really just when we hold those spaces, we're doing it in a way so that folks feel natural and they feel like they belong. 
because that's where we're going to get the most benefit in the long run is that they feel good about themselves. When they feel good about themselves, they're going to work a little harder and we're going to get more stuff done if they're comfortable with who they are. With COVID, we've had to kind of take a step back, not so much for the queer ecology, but just what we're able to do because of just people around. One thing we were, well, an idea that I have is doing like some queer ecology, like a harvest artist type event and just showcase different types of art and how that integrates into ecology, but that's in the works. So would it be like an environmental artist or just using art as a way to amplify natural local ecology? I guess you're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking of like paint and like dancing and like an interactive piece, cool. music, all that. One thing that we're working on right now at the farm is integrating the Two-Spirit Drum. And that is a Bay Area drum group. Within that is, again, is bringing these other elements of ecology. And in this case, it would be sound, like music and sound drumming into the farm. And when we had that drum group on the farm, as people were going up onto the drum, we, we were reemphasizing, you know, they belong there. They're part of the circle. Yeah. And the queer college just allows, it sounds really fancy at times, but really it's just like, we're just organizing people and it's just language to like use today. But I feel like that's more the important part, the queer ecology in the actions. And for queer folks, getting them into a garden space and being physical, it's invitations that are very rare. They don't exist, especially even more so under COVID. Is it, I mean, going back to your statement about how that queer folks aren't easily invited into natural spaces. I guess the question here is like, it kind of is, and it, it doesn't surprise me. What are some of the fears, concerns, hesitancies that queer folk may have towards interacting with nature, natural spaces? And in this case, maybe like the farm. Yeah. Well, one hesitancy I can see is just a sense of disconnection. So just a fear of nature itself, whether it's a bug or uh, getting dirty. There's ways to interact with nature without being physical as well. We're in a very public space. And it also may be because we're in San Francisco. So there's a sense of like general cultural like acceptance. I mean, I would imagine being much more like queer ecology this and queer ecology that, it's going to be different. Like if I was in Ohio or like Nebraska. I'm in yeah. Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Since I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. So, and I specifically, I could say like the level of like support from our elders or just an older generation, they may not understand everything that we're doing, but they're there to just to like hold space if need be. In the farm, there's about four, maybe five consistent young humans. So like under 12, the youngest is just four that are consistently there. Oh, wow. They're hearing queer ecology in the background. They're not integrating it into who they are, but they are integrating the feeling of feeling natural, feeling like they're belonging. Again, that's the bigger idea of as they get older, they're going to socially pick up on all the cues that society ingrains us with. But as they start navigating the world for themselves. They're also noticing when they come to the farm, it's different feeling like, 
you know, acknowledging people by their pronouns, that's like an ecological concept too. Like that's a social ecosystem. You're reflecting the other humans' needs as part of the ecological chain. And when we can do that consistently, that's just like another layer to the social fabric. Yeah. It kind of makes me think about the younger generation maybe not fully grasping what queer ecology is or how it's reflected in their practice on the farm. It just made me think like when you were growing up and interacting with nature, and now that you know more about principles of ecology and you're applying it to your work, when you look back, how do you reflect on those experiences of, because I remember you said you also had experiences of working on the farm and do those experiences mean something different for you now? Yeah, I did grow up around farms. As a farm worker, my parents did some labor and the community I grew up was very farm worker heavy. And I picked up a lot of toxic masculinity along the way in these farm working spaces. And so as I'm re-looking at the farm now, it's like, what am I leaving behind? That's one response to your question. The other one is that there's feelings that I've grown up in nature and exposing myself to just, you know, my backyard and bringing plants home that I found on the street to transplant at home, like all those built lessons, but they also like sustained a feeling. And I could describe it like similar to fire. Like you can feel the fire and you can have hundreds of ways to describe the fire. But the more like experience you have in like being which, how close can you get to the fire? How does the heat radiate? When do you add more wood? Like all of those things are part of a relationship you build. And I would say nature is a similar way where you can, you build a relationship and you would ebb and flow with it, but all those experiences lead to different ways to describe it. And queer ecology is just one where I'm at now. Even like I've been using the words flower bending and and that language of moving flowers through time. And I feel like that is the new layers of the same information, like the same experiences and everything. It's just new language to describe it moving forward. And flower bending moving flowers through time really comes from this idea of sochi olin and sochi meaning flower and olin meaning movement. And as we navigate the climate crisis, we definitely need the power of flowers to get us through. They're the youngest versions of plants. You have your mosses, your ferns, your gymnospores, and now your angiospores. And the fossil fuels that exist, they have no flowers in them. There's no flowers in them. All the flowers came after the fossil fuels or as the fossil fuels were formed in the earth. And so flowers adapt quicker. They are specialized in that way. And even within flowers, like you have flowers that depend on insects and then further on, they evolve to depend on the wind again, like gymnosperms. Like, and those are our major food crops, corn, wheat, rice, amaranth. They're all wind pollen. So that sociolene moving flowers through time is that like, what? how do we move these flowers, like that relationship we built with them over time to name them, to get that knowledge? How do we carry that for more time? And that for me, that takes decolonizing the flowers, the queer ecology, the indigenous practices and refuses them in a new package. And again, it's just the same experience. I'm not, I'm using old language with new terms to describe what I'm seeing, but I'm not the first person to see this. I'm not the first person. I'm just maybe the first person to use this language, but these experiences are universal. Queer folks all over the world know when you see something that just awes you, 
like a butterfly, a butterfly just flowing right in front of you and just seeing the delicate yet powerful little flutter. Because when they flutter, you can see that like power that they have. It's just like a, but then they like kind of glide very gracefully. But there's like a force in there too. Like, and that looks like the sporadicness of the butterfly, but that's the power of it. There could be multiple ways of interpreting that, right? That I feel is part of what this queer ecology is. It's just the language that I'm using to organize people specifically on the farm. Mm. Yeah, as you were describing the butterfly, I observed one yesterday on our walk by the Olentangy River. And I hadn't seen that type of butterfly in a while, but I was thinking about exactly how its wings were moving. But also, for some reason, the birds that I was observing yesterday were flying in different types of patterns that I've observed them before. They were swooping in more and... I was like, there's just so much power in that. It's amazing how they can harness just the simple air around them to go all these heights. It's like you were explaining, it's that fire (laughs) that you feel. Yeah, definitely. You feel it. It's there. And, you know, we'll have different ways, yeah, just describing it. But the experiences are what lingers on. It just reminded me of this, the flower bending, something and the way I'm trying to incorporate queer ecology into this. At the farm, we have enough plants or flowers for like a quinceanera or something at this point. But I really want to create a quinceanera collection or like grow a quinceanera collection where we can offer like a theme for like a party and teach folks how to grow the flowers, like talk about the benefits of the pollinators that come in, allow us to create a local market within like San Francisco of selling our flowers to the community. And offer it to like, not just like Quintana in the sense of just a female turning 15, but I would like our launch to be a, a much more like a queer, gender non-conforming 15-year-old party. So like a Quintana, right? Quintana X, I guess we could start working on that language too. <laughs> that would be so cool. <laughs> but as a way to like debut kind of like, okay, here are urban farmers. You know, here's our youth, current youth. They're growing these flowers for this gender non-conforming 15-year-old party. It'll be new. It'll be like fresh. That's what I'm working on right now. There's a lot of projects as far as the farm goes, but I'm part of this is establishing the plants, the perennial plants that will allow us to like have the material later. We definitely have enough flowers now to host something, but there's going to be no consistent thing. It's just going to be beautiful, but we want all the tables, the 10 tables to look the same. Plus whatever, the May bouquet or flower crown and the decorations, like we're not there yet, but we're working our way there. And that's integrating all this like queer ecology to like a practical level where we're teaching youth how to do it, but then we're also serving community needs because everyone needs it. That's such a cool idea. I love just like the whole meshing of like culture and ecology. You're communicating, yes, coming of age doesn't necessarily have to be within like female or male constructs, right? It's just you're coming of age and you're going to experience the world differently. And here are some beautiful flowers to kind of like help you through that journey or that transition. That's really cool. In your opinion, are there any flowers that are like more powerful or flower bending more than the others? 
I mean, we're all going to build the relationship with them. But another layer of flower bending, I would say, is also physical, like moving flowers. And so if I'm going to use something for like a flower crown for ceremony or for dance or whatever, I will grab those flowers and I will shake them as hard as I can because you also need to know what kind of material. So, you know, if you're going to use them, I would, as you're working on the material, physically be rough with them. Shake them because then that way you're bending, you're like physically moving them. But then give them some time and see how they hold up as you're learning how to work with plants. Because some flowers are super delicate and that's their beauty. That's their charm. That's their magic. And other ones are super sturdy and they will survive days without water. Yeah. Which then brings me to like, and I was just thinking of this is like, how can I integrate some of these concepts into like my own household. So do you have advice on how I can practice query ecology, maybe through like particular plants, home plants that I bring or how I interact with them? Well, any plant I would say would help you disconnect. I would say one thing I share with our folks at the farm is that a flower, when you're like, whether it's in your vase at home or whatnot, they're like food for the soul, but what are they feeding? And so if flowers are the food of the soul, they're really feeding you this idea or this concept that you are natural. They're feeding your naturalness because you can use any flower. There's no specific right or wrong answer to which relationships of plants you can build with, but you can reflect with that. Again, it's like that flower is that heat of flame that or that heat of nature where it helps you acknowledge that you are natural, you belong here. I think that is probably the easiest way because you really could use any plant, any flower. Yeah. As you become more comfortable in the sense of flowers. You'll know which flowers you like more than the other. And that would be like, again, that flame. It's it's got a little bit higher of a flame, so you feel a little bit more, much more comfortable around this specific flower than that one. But yeah, I wouldn't say that there is there one specific plant that's more than the other because they all offer something and they're all unique. And I think that's the bigger metaphor with how we organize folks is that they're all needed. And we bring a new flower, we're like, We'll share it to the birds. We'll be like, here's something to add to your diet. Because or the bees. Yeah, it's getting me excited about all the plants or the flowers and flowers rather that I'm gonna invest in in the next few months. But uh, on a side note, and it's not really related, is I don't necessarily like getting flowers as gifts because I always felt like flowers. Like the way they're used within our society is just like place them in a vase and then they die and then we throw them away. I feel like there's got to be something more that we can do with them, even like past that point. And also because like Kenya is one of the largest exporters of flowers and that takes a lot of water, space, and it's labor intensive and People who work with those flowers aren't paid. So for me, I just go to a whole other level when I think of flowers, for example. No, actually, you bring up a really good point. I forget that I'm surrounded by like my own local markets of flowers that you're right. And mass product, like the global markets of flower production can be very toxic. They have very high carbon footprint. A lot of workers get exploited along the way, like transportation, the growers, the greenhouse folks. So yeah, I guess. The flowers that if you can incorporate, it's best to support like someone locally because of the actual carbon footprint that goes into that. You know, if someone gets me flowers from the grocery store, I will accept them, but it's, it wouldn't be my first choice. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, one thing to just keep in mind with like conventional flowers is that sometimes they're just, they're like little chemical bombs. They're like laced with like fertilizers or pesticides or like fragrance. So they smell more. And conventional flowers, when I was give it someone, one of the first things that people do when they get flowers is they put them in their face. And if they're laced with chemicals, <laughs> you're putting that right yeah, in your face. You go home, you put it on your kitchen table and you're eating and all these residual powders are falling onto your table and you're touching everything. Oh, you're convincing me even more. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I would acknowledge the flowers around you when they're around, especially if you live in more like seasonal area, like the Midwest, you're not going to have flowers in winter. Yeah. But when they do start popping up in spring just going out and observing. And that's just, again, you're just, when you're out in nature, you're going to see other things. You're not just going to see flowers. You're going to see insects and flowers, all kinds of pollinators, beetles, birds, bats, ants, the whole spectrum of organisms also admiring these flowers. Yeah, I mean, the flowers are so beautiful right now in Columbus. And there are these trees, they look like they could be the Japanese cherry blossoms, but I don't think they are. But they have a similar color, like the that distinct fuchsia pinkish color. And I guess I was just, I'm again, not very good at identifying trees or plants. I have it at the back of my mind that I need to find out if these plants are native or like what's their story to how they came to Columbus. I think I know a little bit more about the plants in Florida because that's where I went to school. And so like our courses would we'd address some of like the histories of how those plants and trees were brought over to Florida. And I'm just thinking of like maybe bringing in some local flowers that I can plant at home in pots or something of that sort. Oh, I was going to say the cicadas are coming pretty soon. There's a specific cicada that I guess they come to life every 17 years. So the warnings that it's going to get really loud for many days. Until like they mate and create the next generation and then they go back into the earth for another 17 years. It's really cool. I didn't know that. I'm waiting for the cicadas. I have heard of the cicadas. But one thing that I thought about when you were mentioning the cherry blossom or this tree, sometimes we don't need to label these these organisms. We just got to just, hey, you are blooming. It's beautiful. I'm in awe. I'm just being present in the moment, experiencing you. Yeah. Like that, I feel is part of just existing that just this is natural you are natural it's just that self-reflection right it's it's like hey i'm just amazed, like grateful that you're blooming because i'm enjoying it but there's so many countless organisms around that are also gonna that are visiting that are eating that are surviving that are thriving off the nectar pollen that's being produced here yeah that's really good advice to remind me because we had another guest who came on a few months back Rabia Noor, and she was just talking about how being in nature is you don't necessarily need to know the name of the tree or like where they come from, but just acknowledging them and greeting them and thanking them for being there. And I do that sometimes if I remember, but what you said is a good reminder because I don't necessarily need to know who they are, where they come from, but just to appreciate that they're there. That's true. I guess for me, I feel like embarrassed that I don't know (laughs) these plants or these trees, but I don't need to. Yeah, no, definitely you don't need to. And there's so much knowledge that it it can become overwhelming. And sometimes we're preoccupied with trying to label or name it or like get that knowledge, that word. 
then being present in the experience of like, okay, this organism is here. Like we're sharing space. We're physically sharing space, time and space. Yes. Yes. I love that. I have one last question for you and then want to move into the lightning round. I conducted a survey of our listeners a few months back and quite a few people said that they really wanted to learn about queerness and nature. And so it's really nice that you were willing to come onto the podcast and teach us about this stuff. But it's not necessarily, I would imagine, not necessarily a course or themes that are addressed in the classroom. So do you have any advice for those listeners who do want to learn more about like queer ecology, where to get that information? And you did share some resources with us, which we will share in the notes, but do you have any advice on how these people can think about queer ecology and kind of integrate it into their academic work? Yeah, I mean, the list that I sent you has a lot of just academic papers on it. But other organizers that I know, they're incorporating queer ecology. Well, Instagram's a great way to really find other folks working on similar projects. But um, the Queer Eco Project, who's based out of Oakland, they have a really nice zine that kind of breaks some of this stuff down pretty visually. There are visual folks. I don't actually remember. There's a group at Atlanta, Mariposas Rebeldes. They're a collective of QDPOC Latinx organizers. The last time I was talking to some of them, they're trying to buy a home with the yard and like a farm. They're working on, on constructing a, a farm. Kind of similar, queer, trans, liberating, but connecting that all that to the earth. Yeah, I mean, I feel Instagram might lead you to people. And then that list that will be in the notes has um, more, I could, you know, just papers and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And then in terms of for students who are pursuing a degree in environmental studies or something similar, what advice would you give them about kind of going beyond what they're taught as it relates to queer ecology? The best way to integrate any ecological knowledge is to be present with those organisms. And that really means deconstructing some of the stuff that's learned, specifically the binaries that exist are all human-made. And I think as we reflect on the bigger societal problems that are currently going on, the wealth and inequality, racism, all of the social wounds that exist in our society, they're being addressed now. So the climate crisis is just one of the crises we're processing right now. And integrating the knowledge that we're hopefully learning to navigate the climate crisis also involves deconstructing these social norms that are happening. They're already happening in society. So being able to see that those problems have been ingrained in ecological sciences. So that's one thing that the solution is for everyone involved. And then specifically the queer trans folks that are in environmental learning these things. Yeah, I just want to remind everyone that we are natural, that we belong. And then in order to really put our full capacity to finding solutions to the climate crisis, we need to accept that, that we are, we are here and we, we have a purpose. And as we navigate the climate crisis, our ability to show up as who we are is really going to allow us to think in Spanish, which means uh, to show up. I think to fully be able to reach our potential by just being ourselves. That takes a lot of work. 
but a lot of love. And we're continuously, as queer and trans folks, we've had to navigate social spaces. And sometimes nature is the only space where we can just be. So moving forward, showing up to the climate crisis as we are, is really going to allow us to to reach new potentials and new offerings to help save our collective humanity. As queer and trans folks, we've already rejected social norms to better live in a world that we're creating. As we navigate nature, we're navigating a reflection of ourselves. And so, yeah, I hope that helps. All right. That is good advice. I think it's really amazing how at least students in this generation have access to people like you to help them kind of like find themselves through this pathway, really. Because, I mean, when you were describing how you were like finding yourself and how you found yourself in botany and then like learning about queer ecology, like it seemed like you were mostly doing it like in isolation or you didn't have much of that support to kind of figure stuff out. But it's great that you having experienced that you can provide that kind of like mentorship or that advice to others who may be experiencing similar. I wish I had that. Yeah. There's a saying, I don't know who made it up, but it's our existence is our resistance. And I feel that is part of that advice I was trying to word out. Just being present, being who you are, understanding that you are natural, that is enough. Other people will reflect that and see that in you if you can feel it in yourself. And I know, again, it depends on where you are in the world because that may not always be the safest thing. But how we navigate those social spaces is, is, again, we all have safety to be taken into account. But that inner flame of we are natural is important. And are, you know, just existing other folks have a reflection point. I don't necessarily think that they should strive to be like that person, but they should see what's in them that is reflected and that what flame do they want to feed more to, which layers of, of your own identity rather than trying to just mimic someone or be like that person. Be you and just take what you find that, that cross-pollination of, oh, I really like this. And then this is how it shows up in me. And this is how I'm going to embrace that part of me. I like that you use the word cross-pollination. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So let's go into the lightning round. A series of four questions, whatever comes to your mind, answer the first thing. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you? Hmm. I recently got a copy of The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And I'm really looking forward to it. I've read it once in the past, and I'm really looking forward to how to integrate some of this queer ecology layers into just The Four Agreements, which really just it helps issues with your word, your personality. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. Be impeccable with your word. Don't take anything personally. Don't make assumptions and always do your best. So those are the four agreements that he writes about. It's been a while since I read it, so like over a decade. So I definitely want to integrate queer ecology. See where that melds into it now. Yeah, the don't take it personally is probably the best advice. <laughs> Life advice, but so hard to do, so hard. Speaking of taking things personally, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Personal habit. I would say I don't thrive in chaos, but I enjoy chaos around me. And so 
by that I can keep my living spaces in my home clean, but my individual living space is a little messy and I like it that way. It just lets me, it's a space to kind of declutter, but also literally it's just clutter. So it's like a, my own little space, but um, that is one. The other thing I, another personal habit that I know it's definitely helped is snacking for success. Always have snacks. Snacks helps. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would say another, another thing that I just do in general is just make small offerings, small carbon offerings, flowers and put it, arrange them in an order. I think that's definitely helped me stay grounded and just physically acknowledge the spaces around me. So small carbon offerings. Very quickly. You said the offerings are flowers and you arrange them in any particular order that you feel at that moment. And you just offer it to the spirits? The space. Or to Mother Earth? Mother Earth, like wherever I'm at. Say I'm at a body of water, have a flower. I'll say my name Mm. as I offer it. So that's my like introduction to the space. Or I'll leave them on the ground. And again, I'm limited based on what I have with me at the time. And I think doing that really helps my creativity because I'll have like lettuce that bolted, but it's a beautiful red color or it's speckled. And then I'll take the leaves and a few flowers and arrange them in a certain way. Just leave it there and let it go back to the earth. But being able to look at plant materials for all it's, even when it's past it's due or it's like bolted, you can still do something with that carbon, especially if it's got a beautiful color. I agree. I forgot to to ask you when you were talking about the word so chill mm-hmm. that's your last name your assumed last name <laughs> yes it is i predominantly go by sochi but edgar is my government name but yeah sochi it's not well for flower and i felt that that name really just chose me in the process of you know my background's already in ecology but it was not until i was further along like i mentioned earlier Queer ecology, like, it's just the new language I have for the same things I've been doing. But I think when I was able to really, when I was really looking at decolonizing flowers, because I was at UC Santa Cruz at the time, that's really when, and people had already called me Sochi before that, but it was really like, okay, now it's like a new layer of knowledge and reflection and just in language. I just have new language to describe the same thing. And I definitely think that Sochi was also part of that. I was ready to bloom. I literally was ready to bloom at that point. Yeah. I forgot to ask you that when you're talking about flower bending because you used a similar word, Sochi Olin, yeah. Yeah. And then Sochi means flower and Olin means movement. Very cool. All right. That was not part of the lightning wrap, but I was just curious. So what's the best piece of advice you've received? Mm, approach everything with love. Even when there's difficult situations and there's conflict, conflict isn't bad, but it's approaching it with love. That is, the, I feel, the most important element of that. I personally like direct communication, even when it makes me uncomfortable, because I know I'm learning. But I've had to learn that not everyone likes that. And so definitely approach it with love, because I still want to resolve these conflicts. But I want to resolve the conflicts in a way that makes people feel heard and where and that we both get the resolution that we're hoping for as we're building for the future there are elders that also need to be kind of taken with us and that they are also on a growth journey and so when conflicts do arise approaching it with love is is really good advice i've gotten from other people yeah when you said that it just 
kind of, I guess, relaxed me a little bit because I don't necessarily like conflict and whenever, but I know that conflict is sometimes a healthy way to resolve issues. But when you approach it with love, it makes it less intimidating or less anxious causing. That's good. So finally, what is your superpower? Definitely I'm a flower bender. I feel that that would be it. Move flowers, move plants from one side to the other side, that make arrangements, crowns, dance with them, throw them in the ground, burn them, toss them, <laughs> dunk them in water, turn them into planets. So that would be it. That's cool. At first it sounded like you were describing a relationship with a sibling. <laughs> At least that's my sibling experience. Yeah. <laughs> Younger. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Sochil, for your time. This has been like a really enjoyable and just eye-opening yeah. conversation. I hope we get to have more of these so that it becomes part of our vocabulary mm-hmm. and our way of thinking. And so for those who want to continue on with building on their knowledge and understanding and their language, how can they follow you on your journey? Instagram is probably the most common way. And then I'm starting to work on writing a few things out myself. So I will probably share that through Instagram first. And my Instagram is EcoChicano, E-C-O-X-I-C-A-N-O at Gmail. Hashtag flowerbending. You can find me with that too. Yeah. One way that people could just support it, send me your flower bending pictures. Let's see what that. Very cool. Be you. Be out of nature, enjoy flowers. I might just send you one when I'm out on our walk. <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to add before we put a pause to our conversation here? Thank you for having me on. It's been fun. I hope that your listeners learn some things, share new things, and just get new vocabulary to the same things we've been looking at over and over and over. Totally. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Really appreciate it. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.